Well, thank you, worship team, and good morning to each of you. Take your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 20, page 310. In this final study of King Hezekiah, specifically, we encounter some thrilling miracles that God does, but we also encounter a rather troubling thought. And the troubling thought is that God's blessings contain an inherent danger. And as we consider and count blessings at Thanksgiving, it might puzzle us to think, what could be, what could be dangerous about remembering how many ways that uh, we are blessed? I think we see the risk, however, in Hezekiah's life today. If, if you can think back in chapter 18 when we introduced Hezekiah, verses 5 and 6 said this about him, there was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. All along the way, Hezekiah has been the guy we want to follow. We want to be like him. He, he was godly. He influenced others to be godly. And in fact, God then poured out blessing upon blessing upon godly Hezekiah. And we, we, we say, yeah, we, we want to be like that. And then we discover today that God's greatest blessings to Hezekiah actually became his greatest temptation to sinful, ugly pride. Pride is the danger in God's blessings. The first of two major events that we look at in chapter 20 um, begins with a couple of amazing miracles. And Hezekiah was in deep need of a miracle, verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, went to him and said, this is what the Lord says, Put your house in order because you are going to die. You are not going to recover. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall. We picture him laying on a bed mortally ill. Turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, Remember, O Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. What a dreadful message for a young godly king. He's probably 39, maybe 40 at this point. The prophet, none other than the, the renowned prophet Isaiah, comes to tell him, you will not recover. When is this in Hezekiah's life? Uh, actually becomes kind of a helpful question. It says, in those days, and that term is not so helpful because in those days is a very general Hebrew term that kind of means about that time. And it is not necessarily mean it is after the events that we studied in chapters 18 and 19. In fact, just glance ahead to the end of verse 6 in chapter 20, and you'll see that one of the promises God's giving to him is, I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. Well, that's chapters 18 and 19. So this event needs to be placed before uh, the events of 18 and 19. 
there are a number of issues because we have so much information on Hezekiah that, that kind of has to be sorted out chronologically. And uh, frankly, there's disagreement on exactly what sequence things took. Uh, you see, we have three chapters about Hezekiah in Second Kings. We have four chapters about him in Second Chronicles. And we have another four chapters in the book of Isaiah. So there's a lot of information. A lot of it is the same, almost identical, overlapping. But a number of details kind of make us go, uh, is, if this is true, how could this be? So I, I just want to share uh, a little bit of the sequence, how I'm understanding it. Uh, and it helps us actually understanding the sequence of how his pride became such a problem. So his first year as king as a 25-year-old, and he dies at the 29th year, so that's age 54. He doesn't live all that long, but he has 29 years reigning as king. He started so well, in fact, really most of his life, except for some things we find today, uh, were, were stellar spiritually. Uh, he reopened the temple, you may recall. it. His dad had closed it. He had to fix the doors and open things up again so people could worship. He restarted Passover. It was a big deal. They had not practiced this Passover feast according to the law forever, it seemed. And he also eradicated most idolatry, things that even the godly kings before him never got around to doing, he did. So there is everything to commend about his life. Uh, then it came a season of testing. And in this 14th and 15th year, a year to two year span of time, is when most of the events that we read about in his life uh, take place. And that's where the chronology gets a little uh, bit uncertain at times. So what happens in these events? Uh, today we're going to see, first of all, as, as in the event we just started, that he, gets, he is sick and God's going to heal him. That's a great thing. The second event we see in chapter 20 is that the, some envoys from Babylon come to see him and, and see all of his wealth. Uh, I believe that in between there is where we should put the miracle victory over the Assyrians, chapter 18 and 19. Why? Because when he's sick and healed, as we just read in verse 6, that's actually before they've been delivered from Assyria. And then we will see just the nature of the Babylonian officials coming and they're all celebrating how, how wealthy he is. That doesn't fit at all during a time of war or even threat of war. So we actually believe that then he lived out, I believe he lived out his last 15 years in some peace and prosperity. So what was happening during this pivotal season of his life. Uh, there are, it seems, maybe you can trace this in your own life too, there are sometimes real key times in your life where you go, this is a turning point. This is a big one. One way or another, there is a spiritual test happening and how I respond matters deeply. I, I think most common, and we most commonly think of trials as these pivotal times. And I, I think that's probably the majority of it. God allows certain difficult things in our life, and we have to make some really hard choices, and God can use that to really transform us. Trials are real valuable that way. But sometimes the pivotal season could be a time of blessing. A time when we are, we are just experiencing it seems the joy of, of things coming together and we're, we're encouraged. And can that be a spiritual test? I think so. Um, I don't want to rain on your Thanksgiving season, but you, we have to beware as we count blessings. 
lest they become a source of pride instead of gratitude. So let's think back to verse 1 again. He's ill to the point of death. Um, Later on in verse 7, it's going to mention a boil. And if it's a boil, some have suggested maybe he had some kind of advanced skin cancer. We aren't sure. But Isaiah comes and says, you're done, write your will. Uh, a young king facing death. And, and uh, it seems he, then verse 2, faces the wall and he prays in desperation. I've walked faithfully before you. Wholehearted devotion, done what is good. I don't really think this is the pride issue. I think this is, this is like a legitimate appeal to, to the covenant promises of the Old Testament. God, I've lived faithfully. I don't understand. He had restored the worship in Israel. He had, he had eradicated the high places. He had reinstituted the Passover. God, why? And we've all been there for some situations. Why? doesn't seem to make any sense. And he wept bitterly. He could be weeping bitterly over the fact that, that his nation of Judah needed him because clearly, verse 6, we'll see, the nation was under threat. My nation needs me. And, and at this point, he wouldn't have a son old enough to rule. So, yeah, this is something you put on the prayer chain. So what does he do? He prays. And here's the amazing thing, how God answers in verse 4. Before Isaiah had left the middle court, he doesn't even get out of the palace, the word of the Lord came to him, go back and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David says, I have heard your prayer and seen your tears, I will heal you. On the third day from now, you will go to the temple of the Lord. There's more. I will add 15 years to your life and more. I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend the city for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. Then Isaiah said, prepare a poultice of figs. They did so and applied it to the boil, and he recovered. Remarkable. Hezekiah immediately is is pleading with God in verse 2, and by verse 4, before Isaiah gets out of the palace, the answer comes. God answers immediately. I mean, how often does that happen? We talked last week about, you know, waiting for God's answer. Third day, you're going to be healed. And uh, you may recall in the Old Testament law that lepers with open sores could not go to the temple. And um, this is a promise that in three days, that, that big boil thing is going to be gone. You'll be, you'll be set for the temple. And, and you're really sick now. You can hardly move. Maybe you're on the bed, but you're going to feel well enough. that On day three, it seems, you're going to be instantaneously healed. Um, the cake of figs, we aren't sure what role that played. That, well, fig poultices were a thing, it seems, med- medicinally in ancient times. Did God use then modern medicine? He could. He does today, certainly. Um, But it could be more symbolic, like Jesus applying mud to the blind man's eyes. We don't know for sure, but the promise, here's what we know. The the promise is immediate. I will answer your prayer and do these other things. But the healing is slightly delayed, three days. And Hezekiah thinks to himself, that is quite a list. I'm going to be healed when I feel so sick and ready to die. I'm going to live 15 more years. I'm going to defeat the Assyrians. 
And he asked for a sign. Verse 8. Hezekiah had asked Isaiah, what will be the sign that the Lord will heal me and that I will go up to the temple of the Lord on the third day from now? God actually gives him a sign. In fact, he gives him a choice. Isaiah answered, this is the Lord's sign to you that the Lord will do what he has promised. Shall the shadow go forward ten steps or shall it go back ten steps? It is a simple matter for the shadow to go forward ten steps, said Hezekiah. That's the normal progression. Rather have it go back ten steps. Then the prophet Isaiah called upon the Lord, and the Lord made the shadow go back the ten steps it had gone down on the stairway of Ahaz. <laughs> what will be the sign? That's, if, if, if you've read some in Scripture about asking for signs, it wasn't generally a positive thing. Jesus and Paul both um, criticized Jews for asking for a sign. But then we also recall in the Old Testament, uh, Judges chapter 2, Gideon asked for a sign, the wet and dry fleece thing. And this would be the other occasion. Uh, Hezekiah asked for a sign and God honored it. I don't think two examples is quite enough that the takeaway is to ask God for signs. But um, God gave him a sign. Uh, Ahaz's dad, Ahaz, I mean, I'm sorry, Hezekiah's dad, Ahaz, had evidently built some stairs, which at that moment uh, were partially in the sun and partially uh, in the shadow of the sun. And so it became the, the object by which Isaiah's offering a sign. You want him to go back up or, or down? And Hezekiah said, well, it's simple by comparison. Simple that it would go that one direction that it always goes, so um, I'll take the rewind instead of the fast forward. If you think of it, Hezekiah's faith is, in this season, incredibly tested. I, gotta believe, I was going to die. Now I'm told I'm going to live. Not only that, I'm going to live 15 more years. And now I'm being offered a sign that he's going to move the shadow of the sun. That never happens. I will, I will go for broke. Let's go back 10 steps. And the Lord made the shadow go back 10 steps. It's like if you've watched a time travel movie, you know, you'll know, watch, the, watch the clock go backwards spinning or the, the calendar flipping the pages or something. But th this, this actually happened to prove God's faithfulness to his promises to Hezekiah. And to raise a lot of questions, maybe in our minds, like, how did God do that? Did, did, did God reverse the rotation of the entire earth? And if he did, wouldn't that like, create earthquakes and mudslides? And then we recall that in Joshua 10, Joshua was fighting the Amorites, and he needed more time to finish them off that day. And he asked God to make the sun stand still, and God did. Extended it another day. In fact, it says then that there's never been a day like it or a day since when God listened to a man. And uh, whatever God did with the rotation thing, it didn't damage anything else. But it forces us back to that theological foundational truth that God can do 
anything because God is omnipotent, all-powerful. If we believe, and we do, that God created all that there is, he created the sun, he created the earth, the axis, the way the solar system works, so the one who creates can also manipulate anything he creates. However, it's also possible that on this occasion, the earth did not uh, stop rotating because in Second Chronicles, one of those parallel passages, it actually says that the Babylonians came, that we're going to study in a moment, they came to inquire about the sign that was done in their land or the land of Judah. So could have been a local thing, but whatever it was, it was a miracle to move the shadow. You can't do that. It wasn't a trick, it wasn't an optical illusion, it wasn't a cloud, it was a definite miracle. And besides that, Hezekiah gets a bonus 15 years. Think about that. Think about knowing you have 15 years. He becomes like the only man that ever knew for sure that he would have another day, because we don't. But he also became the one who knew he only had so many days. Uh, The countdown had begun. And uh, I'm not sure I'd want to live with that. Another question we might have as we read this is, does God really change his mind like that when we pray? Um, I thought God had a perfect sovereign will. Did he change his mind? And if you think in a few minutes I'm going to solve that problem, you think I'm smarter, a lot smarter than I am. So... Um, we don't know how God does the sovereign side of prayer. We know the human side. We're supposed to pray. Pray eagerly. Pray fervently. Pray continually. Pray believing. Pray about your needs and desires. Pray according to his will. God is somehow so honored that we ask, and somehow he answers prayer. Uh, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then Give us, day, give us our, this day our daily bread. We, we've all prayed for provision when we've been concerned and God answers. And uh, We don't need to figure out how all of God's sovereignty works. When a young child begs for something, they don't ponder or know how mom or dad's mind thinks. They just know they have more power than me. I'm going to ask them. So we commend Hezekiah we're praying boldly, believing in the power of God. Our takeaway is not to ask for a sign. Our takeaway is to pray boldly for anything that would seem truly good as we probe what could be good in God's will. And, and so, Hezekiah, I, I, we commend you. Uh, this So far, so good. God wants to give you more time in answer to prayer, and God wants you to give you more time to do that which God wants you to do, which includes defeating the Assyrians, I will deliver you in this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. So that it hasn't happened yet. We know that. So by the end of this event, he's experienced the miracle of healing, the miracle of manipulating the sun's rays. And, and uh, we can add, and I've inserted in, in your outline, that, that the next thing he experiences seems to be this miraculous deliverance from the Assyrian threat that comes and takes, let's just review a little bit from last week. The Assyrians are the superpower. They sweep into Judah and they take all the cities of Judah except Jerusalem. This is chapters 18 and 19. 
And so now Hezekiah is, is walled up inside of the city, besieged with at least 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. Things are hopeless. And we read some of the things that God enabled him to do to prepare for this. And, and we read about how the messengers came from King Sennacherib of Assyria. And they, they not only threatened Jerusalem, but they, they belittled the God that they were, the God who Israel and Judah was trusting. And then when, and he, and he sends to Isaiah and says, please pray for us. And then, then they get a letter version of the same threats. And, and Hezekiah throws himself down and he prays. And God answers by sending an angel who kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. And the king of Assyria has to go back to the capital in, uh, of Nineveh in, in, in humiliation and uh, Wow, it's amazing what God did for him. Everything's going his way. He has a track record of faithfulness and godliness, and it's validated by what we've read. So he's a good spiritual leader. He's, he's a good political leader. We've read all that he has done. What could, what could possibly go wrong? He's godly and he's blessed. That's what we want. Verse 12. At that time, Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters to Hezekiah and a gift because he had heard of Hezekiah's illness. Second Chronicles 32 adds, he also, they also had heard about that sign, the shadow thing in Judah. So Hezekiah received the messengers and showed them all that was in his storehouses, the silver, the gold, the spices, and the fine oil, his armory and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. Must have taken him on a tour of Judah. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked, What did those men say? And where did they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied. They came from Babylon. The prophet asked, What did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There is nothing in my, among my treasures I did not show them. Just note the little word, my treasures, my palace. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all, your fa- all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood that will be born to you, will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. We'll stop there for now. God was not happy. Because the danger in all of God's blessings is pride. And he pridefully showed off his wealth to the visitors, the ungodly visitors from Babylon. Uh, the f- section in verse 12 begins with a little phrase, at that time. It's a little bit more uh, specific than in those days that starts verse 1. But it's clearly after Hezekiah's healing, and it's evidently after the Assyrian war, because you know, if, if they were under threat of war or besieged, you wouldn't have Babylonian visitors or taking tours of Judah. How, how did... 
Hezekiah become so proud, smug? How did a good and godly king begin, it seems, to show off what God had done for him as if he had done it for himself? I think this is the the serious question for us because we want to be godly. I I think you got up and got to church at 8 o'clock this morning because you want to follow God. There's, there's something about worshiping. There's something about his word and obedience. and fellow, you, you, you want that. But, but we do want to experience God's blessing. We, we pray about all kinds of stuff and that see, you know, we know that God can do and we've seen his goodness in so many ways. So this is the guy we want to be like. But what we get is a serious warning how pride can pollute the godly things we've done and pride can pollute the blessings that God has given us. God hates pride. That's pretty clear in Scripture. There's so many ways he says it. One of the ways he said it is God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Solomon said it. Peter and James both quote it. And the, uh, the events of the Old and New Testaments always verify God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble and that pride is every believer's problem what is God's discipline verse 17 and 18 you'll be carried off to Babylon the the treasures I'm sorry will be carried off to Babylon and your descendants will be carried off to Babylon Babylon is uh, at this moment a smaller nation. They will eventually, in the next 100 years, become the superpower, and the ones who do take the Israelites, the Israelites, Jews from Judah, captive. But it would be 100 years before this would take place. It would be several generations later that that Judah would be disciplined. And so we have some other questions, like, why was just showing off the treasures so serious? And then the question, why was Hezekiah spared and the discipline delayed? Keep something in your Bible here in this page and come with me to Second Chronicles 32, page 369. When we find, as we do, uh, parallel passages in Chronicles the basic observation of the difference is so much the same, but the difference is often that while Kings traces the political events, uh, Chronicles sometimes summarizes political events but emphasizes the spiritual lessons. And that's certainly the case here. The chronicler is concerned about the spiritual life of people reading that and this and, and, and that's us. So we're going to pick it up in chapter 32 of 2 Chronicles and verse 22, which is just after the record of this amazing victory over the Assyrians. Verse 22, So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others. God did this. He took care of them on every side. Many brought offerings to Jerusalem for the Lord, and valuable gifts for Hezekiah, king of Judah. That's the response to this amazing victory God gave them. They brought 
gifts to the Lord and to Hezekiah. And from then on, he was highly regarded or respected by all the nations. So after this miraculous deliverance, people throughout the land of Judah are bringing valuable gifts for the Lord and for Hezekiah. Do you remember when first facing the threat of Assyria, what Hezekiah did that was a glitch in his spiritual faith? He was trying to bribe them. He tried to bribe them, and, and so he gave them a lot of silver and gold. And, and amazingly, after the victory, God, in his grace, is replenishing him financially. So by this time, he has had a healing and a miraculous sign and military success, and now he has riches and he has fame and respect by his peers of the nations. How did all that affect him spiritually? Verses 24 and 25 uh, in the Chronicles edition now begin to summarize. This is what we've learned from, from his life, and it takes us back to actually the healing, which I think is the, the first miracle he experienced in this crucial season of his life. Verse 24, in those days Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. He prayed to the Lord who answered him and gave him a miraculous sign. That's the chronicler's uh, summary of what we just studied in Kings. But Hezekiah's heart was proud. And he did not respond to the kindness shown him. Therefore the Lord's wrath was on him and on Judah and Jerusalem. And the kindness here seems to be the healing, but it could include the whole inventory of blessings. Hezekiah's heart was proud. It goes, the pride in Hezekiah goes way back to the healing. And so that's why we know it was pride when he's you know, he was the tour guide of the Babylonian big shots looking over all that God had given him. The chronicler wants us to know how pride affects and damages and spoils and pollutes the blessings of God because it's a warning that sometimes God's greatest blessings to us, those maybe amazing answers to urgent prayers, his greatest blessings can become our path to our worst temptations. His heart was proud. How could he take credit for those blessings? For his health. For the victory. For his newly regained wealth. God did all this for him. But we remember how easily, if we look in our spiritual mirrors, pride and self-credit infects all of our blessings. I've worked hard for what I've got, we say. I take good care of myself, we say. And you know I am rather godly. You know, I go to church at 8 a.m. <laughs> and, and, you know, we're, we serve and we help and we give. No wonder God blesses me. Did Hezekiah begin to compare his own godliness 
to the ungodliness of kings before him or maybe even <coughs> those awful kings in the northern kingdom of Israel? Did he fall prey to the dreaded self-exaltation by comparison? God kind of owes me. Look how some people live. Is that what happened? Something happened. And how about his wealth? Jump to verse 27 to 29. Hezekiah had very great riches and honor, and he made treasuries for his silver and gold and for his precious stones, spices, shields, and all kinds of valuables. Recognize the, the, the list from 2 Kings 20. He also made buildings to store the harvest of grain, new wine and oil, and he made stalls for various kinds of cattle and pens for the flocks. He built villages and acquired great numbers of flocks and herds. For God had given him very great riches. Second uh, Kings 20, we, we saw that he gave the tour not only of the treasures in his treasures in Jerusalem, but in all the kingdom. So, Harriet, so Hezekiah gave chariot rides to the Babylonians, but he didn't give glory to God. The last line tells the tale, for God had given him great riches, and oops, that's what he forgot. God gave him the riches. And every time in each of the three books of the Bible that the story is told about the Babylonians, there is no mention that he ever gave credit to God. What a lost opportunity when you have visiting pagans who see all that you have. Our pride steals God's glory. We can be extremely blessed, but be on the brink of extremely judged because God is testing our pride through our blessings. Look ahead to verse 30. 30, middle of verse, or last line of verse 30. He succeeded in everything he undertook, but when the envoys were sent by the rulers of Babylon to ask about the miraculous sign that had occurred in the land, that's Judah, the, the, the shadow, God left him to test him and to know everything that was in his heart. I'm not sure what it means that God left him, except that it means to kind of leave you to yourself. It doesn't mean that he was no longer a believer, uh, or that God was unavailable, but God just kind of goes, what will you do with all this blessing? Because, see, God wanted to know what was in his heart. Everything else we have studied about Hezekiah has been visible. His godliness was on display. He was the king, and he's the one who opened the doors of the temple. He's the one who reinstituted the, the feast. He's the one who, who, who saw to the, uh, the elimination of the high places and his godliness was visible, and his blessings were visible. Everybody knew this guy is greatly blessed. The only thing that wasn't visible was his heart. And the bottom line is that what God actually cares about is the heart. 
Guard your heart. It's the wellspring. Solomon said. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. God was going to test his heart. So count your blessings, Hezekiah. Healing, signs, military victory, wealth. God gave them to you. In fact, God wanted you to enjoy them as his blessings. But he had to test your heart to see if you would glorify him or glorify yourself. And on this occasion, he failed. It seemed to be an eroding sense of pride he'd been going through. Now we see why Isaiah confronted him in 2 Kings 2. Now we understand why God must discipline him for, for showing off all this wealth. It wasn't his wealth. For God had given him great riches. It was all God's blessings and he flaunted it as if he had done it for himself. We've experienced blessings in this room. I, I know we've We've all come in with trials, but we've all, it's like these parallel things, trials and blessings, we've we got them both, right? You've seen God provide miraculously. You've perhaps been healed of uh, something serious. I've experienced that twice, I think, in my life. You've got stories of God's direct intervention, answered prayer. And those things should cause us to connect with Hezekiah's faith. But is it possible then we are susceptible also to his pride? God tested him, left him on his own. How will we respond? It, is there a path to recovery from this? I think that's one of the beauties of this passage. The beauties of looking at this godly man and being exposed to his very human failures also is what gives us hope. You may have noticed I skipped over a great summary statement in verse 26. When it says that his heart was proud and he didn't respond to the kindnesses, right? Then Hezekiah repented of the pride of his heart, as did the people of Jerusalem. It became a national issue, it seems, of, you know, we're so great. Therefore, the Lord's wrath did not come upon them during the days of Hezekiah. So when we understand that the discipline of God was withheld for some 100 years and that there are seasons of still great blessings in not only Hezekiah's life but his descendants, we realize it's because Hezekiah repented of the pride that was in his heart. How do we do that? I don't think uh, it's, it's a one-day, one-off kind of a thing. Pride is so ingrained in us. It keeps propping, uh, cropping up every time we, we look at certain things in our life and smugly think of them as our own or think of them that we deserve them. So it really seems that this, while it's a significant season or moment in Hezekiah's life, this is something that's constant for us. Is our heart tuned to recognize 
our own pride. So that we can make it a pattern of repentance that, okay, I, it, it doesn't say stop enjoying that. What is it, what is it saying? God, thank you. Oh, God, apart from you. Lord, sorry for, again, taking credit for that, which you have done. And this be, becomes a pattern of, of humility because God opposes the proud but gives grace to who? The humble. So this is a call to practice that humility. The Lord's wrath did not come. Go back with me to 2 Kings 20. The final verse in this event of the Babylonians coming is one that uh, can trouble us. Let's make sure that we're not misunderstanding it. So after saying that in verse 17, they're going to, Babylonians will someday come and carry off your treasures, and saying in verse 18, your descendants are going to be taken away also. We read verse 19. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied, for he thought, will there not be peace and security in my lifetime? And uh, we read that and go, can't believe you said that. Well, he actually didn't say it. He thought it. And it's interesting. Why would we know what he thought? Uh, And is it possible that we have misunderstood this? Because if, in fact, as it seems in most of our translations, if in fact he is saying, I don't care about the next generation, just me, that's a true problem of selfishness. But I think it's possible Hezekiah's words are misunderstood here because if you recall, we have just read about his repentance. Hezekiah repented of the pride of his heart, as did the people of Jerusalem. Therefore, the Lord's wrath did not come on them during the days of Hezekiah. We are told explicitly in 2 Chronicles the reason this was delayed, this, this, this judgment, this discipline was delayed, and he would experience peace and prosperity in his lifetime is because of his repentance. And, and so the selfish interpretation doesn't really seem to fit here in 2 Kings. Uh, three of the Hebrew Bible scholars that I studied on this said we should read this phrase differently. Not selfishly, but that he is speaking gratefully. So thinking in terms of his repentance, the first line says the word of the Lord is good. And so what this can actually mean is that what he spoke in response when told about the discipline, but that the discipline would be delayed, is saying humble submission. Okay. The word of the Lord is good. God is right to discipline me, but he is very kind and gracious to delay it. Very kind. For he thought, and then his thought would be actually the same as what he had spoken. Isn't it indeed good that God extended his blessing to my lifetime because I would certainly have deserved any judgment God gave me? Just like the northern kingdom who I personally witnessed a few years ago went into captivity and judgment, we would deserve that too, but God in his grace has delayed his judgment. In fact, the the, the last sections of 2 Kings that we'll read are indeed just a, a record of God's grace. I personally take it that way, that the repentance was genuine and that in fact those last 15 years he had, he could walk in fellowship with God and uh, enjoy God's blessings on his life. The truth 
And the problem of pride is true, however you take it, but this makes most sense to me. The last couple of verses then summarize his life. As for the other events of Hezekiah's reign, all of his achievements and how he made the pool and the tunnel by which he brought water into the city, are they not written in the books of the annals of the kings of Judah? If you weren't here last week, it's exciting to think about that amazing preparation. This was an outstanding feat in his life. This, this tunnel he, he produced he, but with, through his engineers to, to, to help protect the nation when the Assyrians attacked him. Uh, that was a big deal. And Second Chronicles adds that, that uh, when he died, he died with honor because of his acts of devotion. The final, the final words on his tombstone, if you will, were, were, he's a man of devotion to God. But we've learned how pride can sometimes derail what God is doing in the most blessed and the most godly. For our final consideration. Let's think back to what the chronicler said. Hezekiah prospered in all his works, and so in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon who had been sent to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God left him to himself in order to test him and know all that was in his heart. You know what I think is the most troubling to me about this passage, and thus the most helpful Sometimes God needs to take scripture and kind of shake us a little bit. Is that, that this has been the good guy. This, this is the one we're trying to model our lives after. Someone has written that after Hezekiah destroyed all other idolatries, he began to idolize himself. How easily. Is it possible this temptation is the greatest? For those who do many things right, I'd say this room. Maybe we can get blinded by our own goodness that we can't diagnose the danger. If you have a gas furnace, it's fueled by an odorless, invisible substance to do good things. But if it leaks, it can kill you, so the producers have given it this rotten egg smell. Because we need to recognize when something's leaking that can kill us. As long as the gas remains in the line, it produces good heat. And as long as God receives all the glory, blessings are truly good. But sometimes we let his glory leak. And it becomes deadly. Uh, have we trained our heart <laughs> to smell it on ourselves when we've let his glory leak and taken credit for what he has done? We're robbing him of his glory. The good news is repentance of pride can be the pattern by which we grow. As we grow in all other areas of godliness, that we would grow in our humility before him. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you for everything. We recognize your omnipotence. We recognize your power. And in our times of need and trials, we come to you. Lord, you have taught us so much through the trials that you've allowed, the hard things in our life. You've grown our faith. 
Help us not to neglect the lessons of your blessings, that we would grow not only in gratitude, but we would grow in humble gratitude. Help us, Lord, to be very alert to our own struggle with pride, to take credit for that which you have done to glorify yourself through us and that we can become pure instruments of your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.